Welcome to A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. We share good news and godly wisdom to empower you to be salt and light in every season of life. Doug welcomes Dr. Mark Rutland, a distinguished New York Times bestselling author and a seasoned leader in Christian ministry. With a wealth of experience spanning pastoral roles, university presidencies, and global outreach, Dr. Rutland shares profound insights on facing adversity and maintaining unwavering faith. After the episode, consider leaving a review and follow us on your favorite streaming service. If you've gleaned anything from this podcast, consider paying it forward with a gift at somebodycares.org. Now let's join our host, Doug Stringer. It's a great pleasure to have Dr. Mark Rutland with us. Most of you would already know who he is, but let me just read a little bit of this because I uh, would like him to also share about the founding of Global Servants. He is also a New York best-selling author, educator, charismatic leader, businessman, and nationally recognized figure in Christian higher education. I've had the pleasure of interfacing it in times past in gatherings in people's homes when he was a president of ORU and then also ministering together at a men's event not too long ago in Tampa Bay. I just knew after reading through his books and hearing some of his messages, I thought, you know, this is a timely message, though he's been in ministry over 50 years. There are things that we can glean from and pull from in landmark moments, messages, and people that are appropriate for the times in which we're living. And I think we all would agree that we're living in some very challenging but exciting times in which God has prepared us for as a church. And when so many, and you've read in my book, Leadership Awakening, that I quoted Robert Clinton, that 70% of Christian leaders historically do not finish well. I want to talk about those things that will help us to finish well, to be persevering and courageous in our leadership, and to overcome those unexpected detours that all of us are confronted with is in leadership. But there's a couple of books that we're going to touch on today as well. And the one is called David the Great, Deconstructing the Man After God's Own Heart, an incredible book. Uh, in fact, I've already given some copies away to friends and, and family members. Uh, I'll have Dr. Rutland share a little bit about that because I heard him minister on that at the men's event that we were part of. And another one I began to look through and reading now is uh, of Kings and Prophets, Understanding Your Role in Natural Authority and Spiritual Power. We need that more than ever before. There's such a form of godliness, denying the power thereof. We're at a time where we need the demonstration of the manifestation of God's presence and power for the days in which we live. So Dr. Mark Rutland, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Doug. I'm delighted to be with you, all of your followers there and with you particularly. Thank you. We all know you as an international leader, author, president of two universities, an educator. And so we see all that. How did you begin and how did you have a revelation of the work of the cross in the power of the resurrection. The risk you run, Doug, when you ask somebody who's 75 for a story of their journey is that it takes 75 years to tell it. But to be the soul of wit, I'll be brief. I was converted in as a teenager at a non-denominational evangelical, but largely Methodist youth camp. I had not grown up in a religious home. Uh, it wasn't anti-religious. It was four or five times a year to some Methodist church. At this youth camp, I saw the first altar call I'd ever seen, never heard of it. I got saved and felt called to preach the night that I was saved at 15. Um, struggled with it on through the rest of high school. And um, then uh, in my first year in college, I yielded to that again 
came to Emory University in Atlanta for my MDiv. When I graduated from the University of Maryland and then on to Emory. The only um, vision, the only uh, understanding of ministry that I had was to be a Methodist preacher. I, I didn't know anybody else was out there. So I became a Methodist minister. And then um, seven years later, when I was 28 years of age and a very frustrating and defeated time in my life, my wife and I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that was the transforming um, accelerant in our lives. From that moment on, everything, everything was changed and um, began really the sense of adventure in the Spearfield ministry, uh, left the Methodist Church in 1990, um, and I I saw the handwriting on the wall for that denomination, and I accepted a senior pastorate in Orlando, Florida at a mega church. Uh, then from there to Southeastern College, which subsequently, during my uh, time as president there, became Southeastern University and then to Oral Roberts University, and uh, then uh, now the last, since uh, since I left Oral Roberts, I've been um, doing evangelism, ministry, traveling, writing, you know, as God opens doors, and um, trying to keep up with Terry Takel, if at all possible, <laughs> but most of, the, most of the time, I can't even see his taillights. If he would Somebody told me Terry had lost his stride. I said, well, thank God. Maybe we'll now be able to see his taillights. Dr. Rethlin, we had talked a little bit when we were ministering in Tampa Bay. Uh, I just briefly mentioned to see the ability and the gifting that God has given you. Obviously, it came first through the work of the cross and a revelation of the work of the cross, the power of the resurrection. And then subsequently, all the things that God has placed before you. And this passion you've never waned in. You're, you said you're 75 now, been in ministry over uh, 50 years. And there is a passion that's never waned. There's, you've stayed tethered to the Lord. You've you've not deconstructed it like so many are doing now in the sense of your walk with God. And though you're confronted with many challenges, how did you maintain your vision of destination, that sense of purpose and passion, fixing your eyes on the Lord when so many through disillusionment, discouragement, uh, are feeling distracted from even going to their destination. And many are just quitting because they're so disappointed and discouraged. In the interest of transparency, let me say to you that because I've hung in there and seen it through, and now I'll be 76 in November. And because of that, I don't want to say that there's never been a time when I didn't want to cash in my chips and leave the table. There have been times that were extremely discouraging, real seasons of struggle and, frankly, hardship, especially in the early years of full gospel evangelism. My wife and I were, sure, were poor as church mice. There was a season at a, a church I pastored in Orlando that was extremely difficult, some conflict, a season of very great discouragement. But all in all, what I would say is the thing that kept me going was the sense of the adventure. I always had a different view of the ministry than a lot of my friends seemed to have. I don't know that we ever discussed it specifically. I felt that the whole thing was a grand adventure. 
And you can't have a real adventure without hardship. You can't enjoy the, the wagon train ride to California if there's no Indians. I always kind of embraced the hardship as being part of the journey, and it kept me in place. Also, I was blessed with a wife who embraced the journey. We got married when she was 17 and I was 19. She embraced the journey the same way I did. This is part of it. Even the, the toughest moment, this is part of the grand adventure. And I think that helped me as much as anything. So discouragements do come. So each of us have to find that place of drawing from a well that we know never runs dry because it comes from a water source that never ceases. The challenge, I think, is that our disappointments become disillusionments when we put our hope in man rather than the purposes of God. I'm reminded every morning in two of my prayer times, one is my horizontal, where all I do is just ask the Lord. I mean, just ask, don't ask him for anything. I just thank him for everything before I even have my knee time. But one of the things I'm always reminded of is David Livingston's quote, when he would ask the question, why is it when an earthly king commissions us, we consider it an honor? But when the heavenly king commissions us, we call it a sacrifice. And so I know there are sacrifices in the natural, but I pray in the morning and say, Lord, thank you for the joy of your salvation and the privilege of your calling, that it is a privilege, regardless of what I'm confronted with, and realizing that it really is the calling of God that keeps us going because it's not about us. It's about a passion for God that gives us a heart for people, even the people that disappoint us or people that maybe abuse us. You know, we always hear a lot about authority abuse, but there's so much that people don't understand about those who said yes to the Lord and the calling. People you thought would be with you forever are the ones that sometimes break our hearts or don't understand some of the decisions we have to make. And so I know that there are times that we can become so disillusioned that we want to quit. And yet leaders like yourself and others, I've seen another person who had a great influence in my life was Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole and Leonard Ravenhill, David Wilkerson, Jack Hayford, sure. and others. And I've seen a similar quality in each of them and people like yourself and, and others that have been able to, through the midst of the fog, stayed focused on the lighthouse shining in the midst of the storm and the fog. And you mentioned a couple of times about universities and I know when I share with you about the thing that God did with you and your gifting at Southeastern, now Southeastern University in Florida, and also at Oral Roberts University, it was times in those universities when it was a very big challenge. And for you to say, okay, I'll step into that. And it seemed like humanly impossible situations. And yet you were able to be gifted by God to turn things around and, and to be able to see now the health of those universities are doing incredible right now. There were three turnaround events in my life where I felt directed of God. You know, I'm always afraid to blame stuff on God. I don't know if it was God or a psychotic moment, but I went into three very desperate turnarounds. One was Calvary Church in Orlando. It was bankrupt. It was ready to default on a $17 million loan and down to a few hundred people and lose their building and everything. We had a tremendous turn there by God's grace. Southeastern was hemorrhaging. The it was a disaster. And then ORU was upside down in $57 million in debt, many other things. So there were three in a row. So you don't know if God, if he has a calling on your life to enter those things or I don't, I don't really know how to analyze it. You look in the rearview mirror of your life and you try to make sense out of the journey that you've been on. It began to come together in my life that there was some kind of a calling on my life for turnaround ministry. 
I did write a book about that. It's called Relaunch. That's the only book I had that ever made the New York Times bestseller list, Relaunch. And uh, that's because it spoke to business and ministry. So business people bought it and overlooked the fact that it was Christian and Christian people bought it and overlooked the fact that it was business. Uh, so that one is the one that that went to the New York Times bestseller list. And it was about turnarounds, how to stage an organizational comeback. That book never would have been possible if it hadn't been for the events, uh, those turnaround events. I'm grateful for them, but I just want to be clear. They were strenuous, Doug. It was serious. There were times when we weren't sure if things would even make it to the next week, the next day. And yet I, I look back on it. I'm grateful for the challenge. I'm grateful for the outcomes. But I think sometimes people who have been through those things or have led through those things, they make it sound like, hey, this was duck soup. I, oh, Jesus just blessed me and everything went great. And it was never a problem. There were times I remember at Calvary Church when it looked like we were going under. I can remember being all alone in the auditorium on a Saturday. And I said, God, if this thing goes bankrupt, would you let it fall on me? <laughs> I don't want to try to live over it. Just let it kill me. Uh, because it was serious. And we came out of it. All three of them were phenomenal turnarounds. We paid off $57 million in debt at ORU. It's a debt free. I handed over a debt free university to the next president. Calvary Church is debt free. It's been a phenomenal experience, but there were times, I just like to be clear, there were times when I just literally didn't know if we were going to make it to the next Monday. And that's where you just, I don't know, you just kind of hang on to the pommel of a saddle and see if you can endure the ride. Keeping a vision bigger than ourselves keeps us focused on what's before us rather than what we're going through. I remember the late Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole used to teach us that champions are not those who never fail, but those who never quit, and that winners only see where they're going and not what they're going through. I uh, come up with a slogan that I, I was honored. A friend of mine who is a, a champion for, and has been a, a part of American Ninja Warrior, for those that watch that, that considers me one of his mentors. And so he published a book recently. And the very beginning, the book starts out with my quote that says, every life experience can become a life lesson that becomes part of our life message. And what you were talking about is all the things you've learned and gone through, even the challenges helped you in having a best-selling book and being able to help be, have these great turnarounds for these different universities and church. So the very life lessons and challenges you went through are become the very things that became part of your life message. And that's and I think is so important for leaving that kind of message for this generation and those coming up underneath us, that it's not just about the grandiose, it's about it's the everyday commitment to our walk with God and to the principles of God's kingdom to help us to keep our focus. Yeah, that's well said. I, I agree. I think there are just times when you you just don't quit because you don't quit. You just hang on. You just do it. Keep doing it and believe God. You have to have you have to have faith that God's going to turn this thing. And he's never abandoned me. He's never left me. There were, there were times when I thought, you know, God, you could have showed up at five minutes to midnight. It didn't have to. It didn't have to just be precisely on time. It was always on time. And like I say, you have to surround yourself with people. My, my wife has been a, a constant source. I, and 
I have friends and one of them's on prayed for me, Terry, Terry prayed for me, I guess every day of his life. And there are times, Doug, I don't want to sound discouraging or something, but I, I'm afraid sometimes we make it sound too easy with platitudes and quotes. There are times when you just have to hang on to God and see it through. Absolutely. And those were great times. I look back on those times in my life as victorious seasons. And out of those, some good things. For example, those three tough turnarounds. God gave me a, a book out of that that's been huge. I went through a very dark season. I struggled with depression as a teenager, very serious depression, and had a, a flare-up of it later on. And out of that, God gave me a wonderful book on the Lord's Prayer that's been a tremendous blessing to people. And I, I always say to myself, I, I would not go through those things again for anything, but I wouldn't take anything for having gone through them. I'm afraid I'm sounding dismal. I hate to tell too much truth to young pastors. I feel like I'm kicking babies in the mouth. But life is real. Life is earnest. And hanging on to God and seeing it through and keeping your faith and keeping your joy. That's another thing. Learning to laugh at it. And there's some stuff in it all that's funny. I look back on it now. and It's, it's funnier now than it was then. <laughs> but you got to keep your If the joy of the Lord is our strength, when you lose your joy, you get weaker. They seem like easy things to say. Another thing is this. I, I mentioned it earlier. The sense of adventure, I'm a prof one of my profound convictions is the next phone call can change your life. God is a God of constant surprises, changes. I'll tell you something. I, I, I don't know why Terry's on the call, and it, he always has been such a part of my life. I was sitting in my office, and I opened a Methodist magazine, and there was a picture of of a Methodist preacher in a Geneva gown, a black robe, preaching robe, on a motorcycle. And I said, okay, this is a guy I gotta know, who's a Methodist preacher wearing a, a black preaching robe and riding a motorcycle. And I just, I picked the phone up and called him. And it was the beginning of a, of a lifetime of friendship. To me, those kinds of things, those serendipitous things are what make the journey what it is. I think of all the things I could say to, to young people is hang on in the tough times and enjoy the things where something incredible just pops up from nowhere. The next mm -hmm. phone call can change your life. There is a lot of challenges that David had to go through <laughs> yeah. to walk out that relationship with God. And so share a little bit about the context of your book, David the Great, because I found it to be very helpful. I've heard you speak on it. And I think it would be encouraging to other leaders. It doesn't matter how old we are, because as Dr. Cole used to say, that maturity is not based on age, but on the willingness to accept responsibility. And I remember Leonard Ravenhill used to teach us that God doesn't answer prayer. He answers desperate prayer. And a lot of times, I think we, as you said earlier, we have shallow platitudes, or we have these religious incantations, but yet we've lost sight of that place of that intimacy, that that place of first love with God. How did you come around to writing this book, but also uh, share a little bit about the your book, David the Great? First of all, I'm very grateful. Di David the Great has exploded. It's been huge for us. Um, one of the reasons David went so well is because we tapped into a reading market that's not easy. Christian publishers will tell you Christian books are written by women for women, except the men who read Christian books are preachers. I wanted to write a book that would be read by Christian laymen and even non-Christian. 
men. I see a lot of women on the call today, and I just want to say this, uh, regardless of what you think, some men can read. We started to put pictures in this book. We thought that would help. <laughs> it's been a tremendous hit. I wanted to capture the real David, not the sanitized Sunday school version. Little David, play on your harp. I wanted the grit. What a complicated, complex, multifaceted genius at the end of the Bronze Age, on the cusp between the Bronze Age and the, and the Iron Age, 3,000 years ago. How could he write poetry that would melt our heart 3,000 years later and commit adultery and murder and still at the end of his life be called, and even in the New Testament, called the man after God's own heart? I just felt I wanted to dig down into this life. And the book has just been great. I think David is easier to identify with. Sometimes you read a story about, say, uh, Joseph. To those of us who are in touch with our humanity, Joseph almost seems untouchable. But David, you say, okay, this guy I can relate to. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to really heal the layers back. David is one of those men I believe, yes, certainly the hand of God was upon him. I'm not saying, yes, we give God the glory. But David was one of those men that was so uniquely gifted that I believe had he been born in any age of history or any generation, he would have been a giant. People don't realize David was a consummate businessman. David was a political leader. He founded the city of Jerusalem 3,000 years ago. He was a nation builder. He was a, a warrior, a, um, a politician, a poet, a singer. I mean, who, who is this guy? Any man today that is that multi-talented in that variety of arranges would be considered a, a multifaceted genius. And I believe David was. Uh, but it, uh, also the hand of God was upon him from his childhood. I wanted to get underneath that. I wanted to dig down into that. It's been a a tremendous blessing to me to study David and write about it. And, and the book has just been tremendous. I had a sense of the, that the book was going to take off. I was working on the book in Israel. I've been to Israel 48 times. I was in Israel one time after the tour group I was leading went home. And I stayed to do some geographical research. In the computer age, if you make a mistake, somebody will catch it. And I didn't want to say David was marching south if he was marching north. So I actually went with a private guide. I went to the cave of Adullam. I went to different places to see things. And I was working on the manuscript at a picnic table out by the Sea of Galilee. I was in Tiberias. And the Israeli woman came up to me and she said, are you an American? And I said, yes, I am. And she said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm editing a book. And she said, what about? And I said, King David. And she got a horrible look on her face. And she said, why would you write a book about that bloody man? And she walked off. And I thought to myself, what a man. I mean, que hombre, what a man. 3,000 years after his death, he can still make a woman that angry. That's a man I want to know. <laughs> and I had a sense this book is going to explode. And it did transitioning a moment because I think it's a great read. It's a must read. I, as I said, I've, 
given away copies to others as well. And, and, and another book that I've been starting to go through is called the Of Kings and Prophets. When I began to pick it up, I began to even think about things that A.W. Tozier said, and he wrote something called the, in, uh, the Gift of Prophetic Insight. And he said that today we need prophetic preachers, not preachers of prophecy merely, but preachers with the gift of prophecy. We need the gift of discernment, again, in our pulpits. It's not an ability to predict that we need, but the anointed eye, the power of spiritual penetration and interpretation, the ability to appraise the religious scene as viewed from God's position and to tell us what is actually going on. As I'm perusing your book, thinking in how this is such a timely book as well. So I think a lot of times people like yourself or others, myself in the books I've written, we go about writing some things and we don't realize the significance of not just for the moment, but how it will be something significant for even the future and for even a season ahead. And so much of what we're living out today, I think God has been speaking for years to many, many people. And we're just looking in retrospect and realizing how prophetic it really was. Tell us a little bit about uh, what caused you to write this book of Kings and Prophets and uh, understanding your role in natural authority and spiritual power. The book is not precisely a sequel to the David book. In fact, I wrote a book between the two of them, but it is, in a way, a companion piece. David is mentioned in it. You can't talk about the in, the conflict between kings and prophets unless you deal with the conflict between David and Samuel and David and Nathan particularly. Irrespective of that, what I wanted to deal with, it seems to me that in my lifetime anyway, I've not lived through a season when religion and politics are in both conflict and and uh, um, being intertwined, when there's an unholy marriage at times and a profound conflict at times. And I saw that in the prophets. A lot of people don't, they read the prophets, they, they, they read quotes by Jeremiah, but they don't really read the lives of the prophets and their, their intersection with kings. There were times when the prophets, we think of them denouncing you know, John the Baptist denouncing Herod for his illicit and incestuous marriage. We, we think of those things. But there were times when the prophets were advisors. They were almost like the family priest. They, they, uh, they were very connected. There could be times when God may give a prophetic voice favor with someone. Um, may, and I use king loosely. Okay, king may mean a president or a king or a, but it might mean, say, for example, um, a, a famous athlete or um, a musician or something that God may give someone favor with them and access to them. That is both a gift and a responsibility. A gift in the one hand is easier to see. However, a dangerous gift. The book of Proverbs has a fascinating passage. It says, when you sit down to eat, at a wealthy man's table, put your knife to your own throat. That's a very sobering passage. So God may give one access to persons of power or celebrity, whatever. Okay, great. And I shouldn't say you shouldn't do it. That's fine. But it's also a great responsibility. There may have to also come times when you say, this may end our friendship and it may end my favor with you, but you're wrong on this. And that's what I wanted to deal with. The prophets ran huge risks. 
It was highly dangerous. You're that close to a king. And remember, the kings, they're not a president who's got a Congress or a Supreme Court looking over their shoulders. The kings were unquestioned emperors. Their word was law. Take Nathan when he denounced David for his affair with Bathsheba. All David had to do was snap his fingers and somebody would have taken Nathan's head off. And Nathan knew that going in there. He wasn't beguiled. He went anyway. And so there is this constant tension in a relationship between a voice of prophetic influence, if I can use it that way. Um, there may be a time when God may bless you and gift you with access to somebody of some great celebrity or power or something. Okay, that's great. Accept the gift, go there, but understand it's a dangerous gift and understand that there's also going to be responsibility for it. There may come a time when you have to run the risk of rejection from that. You may lose the gift over using the gift. You had mentioned earlier about going to a Methodist camp and uh, having an encounter with the Lord and then actually pastoring in a Methodist church. Is that correct early on? I was a Methodist pastor for seven years and then a Methodist evangelist for 13 years. So 20 years ordained as a United Methodist. So I was thinking about a friend of mine and he pastors Mount Horeb, was United Methodist Church was Nikki Haley's pastor when I first met him, and we were doing some prayer gatherings and solemn assemblies in South Carolina. But something he sent to me was a quote from John Wesley, and he said that John Wesley once said this, I am not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist in either Europe or America, but I'm afraid lest they should only exist as a dead sect. Having the form of religion without the power and this undoubtedly will be the case unless they hold fast both doctrine, spirit, and discipline with which they first set out. And I began to look at that when he said that to me, realize that's not just for Methodists. That's for where we are as a whole, as the church in the West. That, to me, was a very prophetic statement by the very founder of yep. a movement. And yet it speaks to all of us as the church today. Yeah, that's probably the most famous quote from Wesley and certainly... My favorite quote of Wesley's, except for one near the end of his life, he said pithily, I'm sick to death of opinions of every sort. I love that quote. <laughs> that quote that you read, I believe it came from the Armenian magazine, and it was a great quote, and it is, it was prophetic. And I think that voices, prophetic voices in and to the Methodist Church were sounding the alarm years ago, and it was ignored. And the, the handwriting was on the wall. It was, it was a doomed operation. And what is left behind, when those that disaffiliate leave, what is left behind is going to be a, a tragic and macabre facsimile of anything that you would call a church or anything that John Wesley would have recognized. He would be grieved beyond imagination to see what would come up of what is left when this exodus is over with. Frankly, Doug, it's it's an historical ecclesiological disaster. We have another friend, uh, obviously many of you would know as well, uh, Jim Garlow. Of course, Jim is a Wesleyan. There are so many different sects now of what would have come out of uh, what we know as the United Methodist Church, but there's actually other groups, the Wesleyan Methodists. We have sure. so many others that have come from that. 
that have tried to adhere to what they believe was the the foundation of their movements. And uh, and I even think about William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, and how prophetic this statement was when he said that I consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. Again, this was written back in the 1800s, and this is a very very prophetic yes, it is. statement that we're living out right now. So how yes, do we address that context that they saw, had a foresight to see, but now we're living out? How do we take these cracked foundations and see the healing of God in the days in which we live? Well, that's a very good question, uh, and I, I, I hear what you're saying. I'm afraid, I, I don't think I've called in a dismal, uh, I don't think I've gotten onto this call in a dismal mood, but I, let me let me say something to you. That it's a good question. How How do we bring healing? I hear you, and there may be times and ways to bring healing, but I I also want to say this. There can be times, Jesus said there would be times. When he sent his disciples out, he said there will come times when the word is rejected and you shake the dust off your feet and move on. So not everything, Doug, this sounds like a harsh statement, but not everything's going to be healed. Not everything's going to be fixed. Not everything is going to be redeemed. Speak boldly, speak prophetically, speak with love and grace, preach redemption. But remember, everybody has the right to choose, and organizations can choose, religions can choose, churches can choose, and there there can come a time when it's it's done for. And and to those persons that are in that, I would say this. I know this sounds harsh. Maybe I. I think the young people on the call must be saying, what happened to this old guy? But there are times when you need to say to people, this organization is doomed. Flee the wrath to come. Get out of Sodom. Go to higher ground. So there is a time, you said the writing on the wall, Ichabod, the glory of God has departed. Yes. So yes. we want to bring, we want to speak the truth in love, season with grace, but speak the truth nonetheless. But yet there's a time we have to allow God to do his work. And we blame the devil for everything. But sometimes God's trying to shake everything and he's trying to get our attention. And yet we see good things that can come from that. I mean, even if you look at the, you know, the Church of the Nazarene, the Methodist Church, so many other movements came out of challenging times. And people think romantically about revival, but revival stirs things up and, and the fire comes and you can't negotiate with the flames, as Dr. Michael Brown says. I don't believe in eternal organizations. I believe in an eternal God. And I think God can raise up instruments in my in my lifetime, which is seems to someone here to be extended, but still in the scope of Christianity is a blink of an eye. So in that blink of an eye, I've seen organizations that God raised up, used mightily, used in a huge way, then they were dismissed, they were finished. And I don't see that as a tragedy. I see that as God operating in that moment, in that way, and in the next generation, the next year, the next day, he says, I'm going in a different direction and use a different voice. Then great. (laughs) You know, he's like God and all. (laughs) He gets to choose. And uh, and so I I feel that there are things uh, when God just moves on. And great, right? 
and I'm not going to spend my life and my few years left trying to drag something along and make it go there. Sometimes when it's over, it's finished, move on, find what God is doing today. Find what God is doing today. I guess if there's been one thing that has filled my life with joy, it is get where God wants something done and get there. And that's where the action is. That's where the action is. Instead of standing where you are up to your waist in mud and demand that God come where you are, get over where God is doing something and get in on that. And that, that hadn't always been an easy ride, but it's all, <laughs> frankly, that's the adventure. That's what I said at the very beginning. If serving God isn't an adventure, you're missing something. You've missed something along the way. We can read a lot about past awakenings, revivals, movements. And again, we always see the romantic side of that. And yet it's usually in the midst of a precursor to or a result of difficult times. So if we yes. look at 1857, New York City, Jeremiah Lamphere, that was prior to the Civil War. We look at the Welsh revivals, not the one with Edward Irving 100 years before, but the ones that happened in, in the early 1900s. And then we see Azusa Street. We see so many things. They come around times of yeah. national or global challenges, and then revival happens. But it's a, either a pre precursor to or subsequently to through a, a current situation. We see that in the latter rain movement. We see that in the Jesus movement. And then just in our lifetime, not just reading about revivals past, but in our lifetime, the last few decades, you've seen with the Jesus movement, the latter rain movement, you've seen the, the charismatic renewal in the Catholic Church, Methodist Church, Lutheran Church. Those are all preparation for getting people to move into a place of becoming something bigger than themselves. As you said, the eternal God and the Holy Spirit is a commonality, and yet not everybody moves there. So uh, do you feel like we're ripe for another kind of outpouring like that again? Yeah, I think, I think God is the God of the unlikely. Everybody that's on this phone call today, every every one of you that's listening to this podcast, you're an unlikely instrument. If you be honest with yourself, anybody look at your life from the outside and say, is, is, that, is that a person upon whom God will lay his hand to do great things for him? Probably somebody in your life would say, I don't think so. <laughs> so you're an unlikely instrument, and God uses unlikely instruments in unlikely times. This is an unlikely time for a revival, which makes me think it may be likely. The Wesleyan revival, to which you've made multiple references, Wesley came. England was a disaster. Child sex trafficking was huge. It was the height of the gin craze. People, it, it, gin craze in, in England in the 18th century was like the drug craze now. And according to Lukak and Hutchison, the most common street sign in London at the time of John Wesley was get drunk here for a penny. Gin, gin was cheap. It was, uh, it was accessible. It could be made in a sink and it was being sold. Uh, child sex trafficking was huge. Prostitution was huge. Uh, venereal disease, the, the church of England was corrupt and, powerless. It was a, an unholy blend of the church and the, and the state. And in the midst of that, God chose John Wesley, an unlikely, almost 
frankly, almost a neurotic, obsessive, compulsive, harsh and legalistic with a high pitched nasal voice that was irritating to listen to. And God turned the world upside down. Who knows what his instrument is now? We keep thinking there'll be somebody else that looks like Billy Graham. Maybe he doesn't look like Billy Graham. Maybe he looks like some gangbanger in South side of Chicago. Out of that, maybe someday some kid lays his gun down and picks up his Bible and changes the world. So I'm I'm not giving up hope and I'm not giving up hope in a revival. All I'm saying is I'm, I don't want to waste the last years of my life carrying oats to a dead horse. I want to be where God is doing the next thing. That's what I want. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Dr. Terry Teckle and I both have a friend and actually looks to Dr. Terry Teckle and myself as uh, mentors in his life. And uh, has, he's just like that. He was a gangbanger and drug mm-hmm. addict in, in Bryan College Station, Texas, when Dr. Terry Teckle was pastoring at uh, at the Methodist Church there, Aldersgate, and uh, back in the 80s when we first met. And and so JJ today has this incredible ministry, not just reaching the Brazos Valley, but all over the world through uh, ministering to at-risk youth and drug addicts Wonderful. and gang members. And, and uh, that's a, a prime example of what you're talking about. It's not what we expect. Uh, we had a family friend, the late Ray Hoshizaki, or we knew him as Hoshizaki-san, and during World War II, he was a Japanese-American, and rather than let put him in a camp, they allowed him to stay on at Baylor University as a student. During that time, some other peers said, Ray, we really believe you're supposed to lead us in campus revival. He says, I'm not the right person. I'm a Japanese-American in the middle of World War II, and so I'm not the one to do that. And yet they really felt strongly that he was, and he ended up being used by God to see campus revival at that time in the 40s. sparked at Baylor and other places. And he was the first missionary sent by the North American Missions Board of the Baptist to Japan as a missionary. Today, they make it mandatory reading in some classes at Baylor a book about a book called On the Wings of God that speaks a little bit about Ray and the other students that were there at Baylor at the time. But that came from, as you said, an unlikely individual is an unlikely spark for revival and yet god used a person who was the most unlikely and yet used him to to spark something that is continues today in fact dr tony evans and i were asked at the dedication of the new mclean stadium at baylor a few years ago and they asked me to share about the story of the unlikely spark of revival in ray hochizaki who had been a student there and how the the ripple effect of that still continues today and I think a lot of things we we look for the grandiose, but we're missing the moment where God is still doing something. We just are looking somewhere else when he's trying to do something right in front of us. Because, you know, it's one thing to have the institutional church, which is, should be a platform for the Lord rather than a boxing God in. As we're beginning to try to struggle through finding the presence of God again, how do you see the church in the context of where God's wanting us to be, to inhabit his presence again, not just worshiping the Bethel or the Bethel, the institution, but worshiping the El Bethel, the God of the institution. I'm always afraid I'm going to mishear the question. <laughs> so I am I may answer the question I heard and not answer the question you asked. So if I miss you, forgive me. So it, it, here's the, the point I, I feel is very strongly. What I said earlier about sometimes 
something's just finished. It, Ichabod gets written over there. Okay, that's fine. But that never means the church as the bride of Christ. That never means that. The church, I, I talk to young people sometimes and they say, I love Jesus. I just don't love the church. I say, well, then you're wrong. You, you can't be used of God if you don't love what he loves. Jesus yeah. died for the church. My faith in God's hand on the church is not diminished. The church as, as a truth, the church is the body of Christ until the end moment, God's hand will be upon the church and his presence within the church. I'm just saying what I'm saying is that is not going anywhere. It may change, move, shift, look differently. And if we confuse the, the spiritual reality of the church with some particular organizational structure, that's, that's a form of idolatry. What I'm saying is I believe in the church. I love the church. And Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there. His presence hasn't gone anywhere. We don't have to invoke his presence. We, we have to get into his presence and experience his presence and respond to his presence. I, I remember years ago, um, I went to a, a minister's conference, a Methodist preacher's conference, and the district superintendent said, I'd, I'd like to uh, ask this pastor, stand up and please invite the presence of the Lord. And an elderly pastor in the back stood up and said, it's too late. He came with me. And, and I've never forgotten that. We don't have to worry about the presence or absence of God in the church. Jesus has not gone anywhere. Don McLean was wrong. The Holy Ghost did not catch the last train for the coast. Uh, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus is here. The Holy Ghost is here. I'm not worried about the church. There are times when specific locations, names, those things, when that's finished. And, I, and I'm not going to hang on to something. What I want to be is hang on to the hem of his garment and go where he goes. So the incarnational presence of God is with us. Yes. Uh, the structures that God uses may look different, but he's still moving. And Amen. It's just, uh, we sometimes propped up institution without incarnational presence. I think what we need is a renewed revelation of the work of the cross and the power of the resurrection. As Winky Pratty says, God is God and we are not. Thank you so much for being with us today. And just any final thoughts and then pray for those who will be watching the edited version of this uh, Zoom call for our Transforming Leadership Intensives, as well as for those who will be listening via podcasts and other means. Jesus is Lord. That hasn't changed. It isn't going to change. And as long as we understand it and pray for his lordship and to be filled with his Holy Spirit, God will use us to the last breath. And God, God is still here and with us. Amen. Lord, I thank you for those on this podcast today and those that will ever hear it through any means whatsoever. Bless and strengthen us, O Lord. Give us prophetic authority and the graciousness and love that would allow us to be in love with the people that you're in love with. In the mighty name, Jesus, the strong son of God. Amen, amen, and amen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.